Welcome to the golden age of optimism. We're moving along. I'm John Charles Harmon. I'm an author. I'm a scientist, kinesiologist. I'm a Buddhist, a philanthropist. And I am a musician. Chill in Brazil is my music on all platforms. I'm reading my books into podcast form so you can have an audio version of my books. So just to remind folks, if you want to start at the beginning of a book, you need to go to episode one of that book. The current book that I'm reading is my autobiography, which is called Sitting on a Log. It doesn't include all of my life because we left out the past six or eight years. So we're going to continue He then looked over at Wolf and said, Is what this guy is saying is true? Wolf, of course, said, Yeah, yeah, with his German accent, as thick as possible. How long does it take to fix the damn cable, the sheriff said, now putting his gun back in his holster. It only takes a few minutes. I have to start the generator to run the welder, then I just weld it on, Wolf said. He already paid you to fix it, the sheriff asked. Wolf nodded yes. Okay, then, I guess you'd better fix it. He then went over to Wolf, took out his gun, and unlocked the handcuffs. He walked around as Wolf started up the generator, got out the welding machine, and climbed under the van, all the while pointing the gun at him. He made me sit down on the log and wait. Wolf fumbled around, and then he said to the sheriff, I need someone to pull this thing taunt so I can get a weld on it. The sheriff motioned motioned for me to go over and help him, so I did. Once under the car, we had a fast whisper conversation, and uh, Wolf was asking me why I didn't hit him over the head, and I said there was no way I was going to do that, and he said, I know you weren't going to do that. And then basically, I promised to help bail him out. He finished. I got in my van, started up, and rolled down the hill slowly in second gear, not wanting to shift just in case the weld on the transmission cable was no good and broke. I also was hoping that if Brent, my friend, was anywhere near, he could come out of hiding and jump in. So I went really, really slow. But I didn't see Brent anywhere. So I ended up driving the 30 miles down the canyon, staying in second gear. When I got back to the highway, I finally decided to shift and see if the cable held. It did, so I drove straight back to Santa Monica. Brent called that night around 11 p.m. and wanted to talk, but I told him I would come by his place in the morning. I didn't want to talk on the phone with him that late at night, no matter what happened. I knew no matter what had happened from this point on, there was nothing that could be pinned on me and no evidence that I had been involved in any wrongdoing. Of course, I was worried that my property might be confiscated or something along that line, but as for evidence that I had anything to do with anything, well, there was just none. I knew for sure that Brent would be worried about the plants and the profit from them. I was working, and so if it fell through, then it fell through, but he wasn't working, so it meant more to him. I was fairly certain the sheriffs would snoop around and find the plants on my property, then pull them out. They would think Wolf had put them there. And as long as I helped bail him out of jail, he was never going to say a word. 
He had been raised in a pretty strict German household, and he knew the value of honor. Brent and I went to breakfast the next morning and talked. He was pretty paranoid, and it rubbed off on me a bit when he told me his story. He told me how he had made it back to the little trailer and retrieved his backpack. He then wiped everything down inside just in case they came there to take fingerprints. He then hiked up on the hill to the south of my property and watched the whole episode with Wolf, the sheriff, and myself. When I drove off in the van, he wanted to come down, but it was just too far to go. So he ended up hiking another two miles back to the main road and decided the only way he could get back was to start hitchhiking. The first car to come by was a sheriff's car, and they stopped and asked him what he was doing. He told them he was hitchhiking back to Los Angeles because he had come up for the day with some girl that he had met. They had got in an argument, and she had left him there. He told them she was really hot, a blonde girl with big breasts. I started laughing because that sounded like something that Brent would make up. He was not out of character for Brent, that's for sure. He then told me that they didn't believe a word he said and that they had him go with them back to the sheriff's station. They took him to the station in Arvin, which was actually on the way back towards the road that led to Highway 5, so he was a bit closer to Los Angeles. They sat him in a room and grilled him with questions, but he stuck to his story. What he found out, though, by being there, was pretty disturbing. What had actually happened is that some other people about 10 miles further up on the Paiute Mountain Road, were also growing marijuana. The sheriffs had somehow found out. Two of them came in to investigate, and there was a big shootout. Two sheriffs were shot dead. The killers were on the run. We both agreed to get the money together to bail out, bail out Wolf. It was about $5,000, and I put up the better part of it and money on my credit card. About a month later, I drove back up to the property very early one morning just to see if they had pulled the plants, and they had. Brett and I were not sure if Wolf had gone in and taken them to raise money for his defense or if the sheriffs had found them. Either way, they were gone, and that was the end of my growing days. Wolf ended up just getting a few months in jail and a fine. So we guessed that Wolf had taken the plants out. Otherwise, he would have been more severely charged. A few weeks later, Brent told me he had been watching the TV show, quote, America's Most Wanted, unquote, and heard that they finally tracked down the two guys that had shot the sheriffs somewhere in Mississippi. Before the summer ended, Tara told me she was taking the kids and moving back to Albuquerque. I found out much later through the grapevine that she had been having an affair with some guy from San Diego and that he asked to have his job transfer him to Albuquerque. They'd planned it all out with, without me knowing a thing. I was pretty thick-headed, I guess, trying to do the marijuana project and working too much. I was distraught, very distraught and hurt.
I had raised Marina and Michelle for over seven years, and just like that, my instant family was gone. Tara broke up with the guy she had met not long after she moved back to Albuquerque, and she wanted to get back together with me again. But I had moved on. I was able to keep in touch with Marina and Michelle over the years, and they both came to visit me a number of times. Marina was a top student at her high school. She played the violin in the orchestra. Then towards the end of her senior year, she got pregnant. She decided to keep the baby instead of having an abortion. Michelle did well also and was on the swim team in her high school. I still talk to the two of them on occasion. Once again, I was back sitting on the log. The young tree that had fallen was starting to decay, and the frogs were having a lot of fun jumping around. What generation of frogs they were, I had no idea, but they all looked the same to me. I just know I was really hurt. More because I'd put so much effort into being a good father, and now I was no longer in that role. I missed Marina and Michelle even more than I missed Tara. Tara was a Midwest girl, and maybe she had just longed for the beautiful sunsets they have in Albuquerque. Maybe she missed her family too much, or maybe she thought getting married to me would force her to have another child, which I don't think she wanted. Maybe I'd spent too much time in the past, past few years just trying to make money and had neglected having fun with her. I don't know all of the answers, or I don't even know some of them. I just know that I was hurt. And I was sad. It was a long day that day sitting there at that log. The fog started to roll in off the ocean. And as the fog started to block out the sun, I had a dark, eerie feeling that things, well, things might not get a lot better. Still, I, I tried to block that feeling out because I wasn't it eternal optimist, even back then, and I believed in the long run I would someday find my peace. Chapter 9. Brazil Nuts. Life's a bitch, then you die. I read that on a bumper sticker I saw once. I felt like that at this point in my life. I was 36 years old now and felt pretty much that no matter what I did, I was going to end up on the losing end of it. I was getting tired of selling real estate, so I went back working for my father. He had gone off to Alaska fishing with some friends. I remember he had put a bid in on this house that was on two lots directly across from the Brentwood Country Club. The owner wrote a counter offer, but right after the same time, or about the same time, a better offer came in. I called my father at the hotel he was in, and he called the agent. He threatened to sue everyone because they didn't give him a chance to respond to the counteroffer. He ended up getting the house. And my father is known for being a very shrewd man with business. I had answered some personal ad in a newspaper and was now corresponding with a woman in Brazil. She seemed pretty nice. She told me she was trying to get a visa to come to the U.S. During the year that we wrote letters... I dated some, but not too often. I really didn't know if this woman would get a visa or not, and I didn't know how well we would like each other if she did get a visa. I had been in a car accident, plus had too many tickets, so my driver's license was suspended for six months, so I had, I had to ride my bike to work. 
or take the bus everywhere. The Buddhist organization that I had been part of was having a dispute with the priesthood, and I decided to step back and not participate for a while. My mother had been a Catholic all her life, and for the lay Buddhist organization to have a dispute with the priesthood seemed like if a church had a dispute with the Pope, well, come on, I'm not going to take the side of the church. Even though the leaders of my lay Buddhist organization tried to convince everyone it was not a big deal, I knew it was a big deal. They say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So in this case, I guessed the leaders of the lay organization had let their power go to their heads, and I was right. And the priesthood eventually excommunicated the lay organization. I was happy I made the right decision there. I continued to do the practice on my own, but not as consistently as before. I guess I was older and less brainwashable to some extent. Today I'm back practicing and I'm, I'm following the priesthood. We tore down the house on that lot that my father bought. Then we were working on constructing two big houses. Durrell was at his heyday of drunkenness. He would show up in a cab because he was too drunk to drive sometimes on Fridays to pay everyone. It was during those projects that he was found one night in the street in a pool of blood. He had drank too much and had been taking aspirin or something, and he nearly died. After that, he stopped drinking. It took nearly two years to complete those two houses. I still had my real estate license and was able to list the first one for sale. My father listed it at a very high price, but the economy was not doing that great, so it just sat there, and it didn't get many offers. One, one day, Durrell came by and said he knew someone that wanted to lease the house. There was a guy that owned what used to be called the Four Corners on the corner of Palms and National. And he knew someone that wanted to rent the house for one year for $100,000. He would pay in cash. Well, I got zero commission, but, but I saw when he came with the money in a black satchel. I remember telling my dad that people don't rent places and pay with bags of money. My father just laughed and said, Well, son, remember, always take the cash if you can. I don't know them, and they don't know me. I could care less where they got the money from. I cannot say for certain that my father, what my father did with that money or how much he actually knew that he had. I just know I never saw one penny of it, and I was the person with the listing on the house. I was pissed off. That year passed, and I asked my father if the guy was going to renew the lease. My father didn't want to give me an answer. So a few more months went by, and I remember telling my father that we should give the guy a 30-day notice if he wasn't going to pay the rent. My father still didn't want to talk about it. One day, we were making repairs on the house next door to it that we had also built as it was up for sale and still vacant. Durrell drove up towards the end of the day to see how we were coming along with the repairs, and I told him, hey, what about this guy in the house next door? Why hasn't he paid the rent now for almost six months? Why don't you go over there and tell him he needs to pay or move out? Durrell looked at me, and he sort of half laughed. And then he said straight out, quote, you are Wayne's son. If you are so worried about it, why don't you go tell him? Unquote. I was a little pissed off, mainly because Durrell 
made so much more money than I did and often did so little work. I had to run the jobs most of the time. But he actually did make sense there. I said, okay, I will. I replied and I hopped over the fence and headed for their front door. Durrell made a beeline to his car and drove off. I knocked on the door that had a big stained glass window in it, but no one answered. I rang the bell two or three times and no one answered. So I tried to peer in through the stained glass, but I could only see a shadow, shadowy type figure moving around because of the obscure glass. Now I knew someone was at home, at least, so I yelled out, hey, you guys, you guys owe my dad rent. I then knocked again. I knocked pretty hard and said, come on, open up the door. This time, the door was flung open, and there stood a dark-haired guy about my size, maybe a few years older than me, holding a pistol, pointing it right at me. Behind him stood another guy about the same age with a goatee holding a machine gun. My hands went straight up in the air. Who are you and what do you want? The guy holding the pistol pointed at me said. I was scared, but I had come there to tell them something, so I was going to tell them. I said, I told you who I am. I'm Mr. Harmon's son and... You owe him rent. Go ahead and shoot me if you want. I'll just be dead, but you two will go to jail. Actually, if you want to shoot me, I don't really mind. My life has been pretty screwed up for the past few years for some time now, and maybe death would be a good welcome solution. I don't know why that came out of my mouth like that, but it did. They both laughed at that statement, and then the guy with the machine gun stepped forward a little closer and raised the gun and then said, should I shoot him? The other guy pointed the pistol at me, put his hand down and said, I don't know, wait, maybe. Now I was ready to run or pee in my pants or both. Then the guy said, did you say we owe your dad rent? He looked at me and stepped to the side so the guy with the machine gun had a clear shot. Suddenly, a calm wave of emotion came over me. And that moment seemed like a perfect moment in time. I don't know why. It was very strange. It was almost as someone was speaking through me. Maybe it was an act of God, but I was Buddhist, so I knew it was not that. I, I knew I would remember it forever. Here I was, standing at the front door of a house my father owned, and two obvious gangster types were standing in front of me with guns. They owed my dad rent money, and I knew now my dad would never get it. But I also knew that I had already won, because after seeing me, they would have to leave. The Brentwood Country Club was directly across the street, about 70 yards away, the Mexican guys and El Salvadoranian guys that worked with us, they were hanging on the fence watching the whole thing. And if they shot me, there would be people running out to see what happened. So I said, yeah, that is exactly what I said. You owe him rent. So either pay up or move out. And if you want to shoot me, go ahead. Like I already said, shoot. I'm ready to die anyway. The guy slammed the door in my face. 
I went straight over to my dad's house and told him what happened. He acted like it was nothing and that I shouldn't tell the police because he was sure they would move out pretty soon. But I could see in his face that he was a bit scared. Believe it or not, a week later, Brent called me and said, John, did you see America's Most Wanted? This is the second time. I guess Brent liked watching that show because now was the second time he'd called me and said the exact same thing. Your dad's house on Burlingame was on TV. They were taking these three guys out in handcuffs. They were in the mafia and from back east. They had stolen $2 million from some other mafia guys and had been hiding out for a year and a half in your dad's house. I laughed and told him the story of going over to their door, then went over and drank some beer with him to tell the story all over again. We had a good laugh. A few days later, I received an unexpected call from Jane, the woman I'd been writing to that was from Brazil. She had finally got her visa and wanted to meet me. She said she was staying with a friend in San Bernardino. So I drove and met her. It was about an hour away. She seemed nice and she was very attractive. She spoke some English. She spoke fairly good English. We went a month or so later to a birthday dinner for someone with the whole family at this nice Italian restaurant in Playa del Rey. Jane had on green contacts that day. Jane was mostly of German background, but Brazilians are mixed up a lot more than they are here in the U.S. because they do not have the color prejudices like we do. Jane had brownish hazel eyes in reality. My mother walked around the table to her and then asked me, does she have blue or green eyes? I thought that was weird. Jane was staying at some guy's house in San Bernardino. He was Brazilian also. Long story short, she became pregnant. I asked her to come and stay with me for a while and we would decide what to do. She, like Tara, had two girls in Brazil, actually, Priscilla and her older sister, Vanessa. Jane wanted an abortion and I wanted to have the child. I told her I would marry her and she could bring the two girls here. I wanted to try to have a family again and I knew she was pregnant with a boy who would be my son. Once we were married, we could get green cards for both of them, I told her. I knew the child was a boy. I just knew it. When the sonogram confirmed it, I told her he would be named Eric, and she could pick the middle name. So she chose Raphael. My father bought us a ticket as a wedding gift to go back to Brazil to meet her family. Jane was already two months pregnant when we got married. So I found out in Brazil when we went there that, well, she was all, by that time, she was about six, five, six months pregnant, five, about five months pregnant. So I found out in Brazil that the two girls that were hers were from different men and that the older one, Vanessa, barely knew her mom at all. I also found out when I went to get the immigration visa for her that she had been married before to him and never had been divorced. So basically my marriage in the U.S. to her was void as far as immigration was concerned. It took me another month and all the money I had in my bank account to get some phony divorce papers so we could get her immigration visa. The other daughter, Priscilla, was living with her grandparents. She was supposed to come back with us, but at the last minute, they wouldn't give us a visa for her. At the same time, we also filed for her daughter, Vanessa, but when and if she would come, still was not certain. 
At last, back in the good old U.S. of A., after my honeymoon to hell in Brazil, I found out what I had sort of suspected all along, that Jane had some issues. She had been through a lot of bad things in Brazil, and even though she came from a fairly good family, she was not protected from the bad things that could happen to anyone in a big city like Sao Paulo. Now she was almost five and a half months pregnant and getting really anxious all the time. I tried to get her to stop smoking and drinking, but that was only minor success. I resorted to making chocolate shakes and putting the vitamins from the doctors that he had prescribed in them with double the dosage. And almost seven months pregnant, I came back home from work one afternoon and she was really out of it. I looked in the bathroom and saw two empty bottles of Tylenol. I rushed her to the emergency room and they pumped her stomach. She stayed in the hospital for about a week, yelling and screaming at everyone. She kept saying she didn't want the baby and she wanted to die. Eventually, with the help of the psychologist, she was able to calm down. I was finally able to bring her home and she seemed to be like a different person for a short time. Now, she sort of gave in to the fact that she was going to have a baby. At seven and a half months, her water broke and she had a C-section. Just before the doctor did the operation, he came to me and he said, quote, Mr. Harmon, I just have to tell you this because it is my job. This child is being delivered premature, so he will need to be in the hospital for a few weeks or so. Also, there's a possibility that he could have a deformity because she has a small hole in her uterus from a previous birth and his arm or leg could have been stuck in there. We will fix that part of her uterus so if the two of you ever want more children, she won't have that problem again. I was shocked. I just stared at him with a blank look on my face, totally dumbfounded. Here I was, already having gone through stress with her for a lifetime, and now he's telling me my son could be deformed. And then he's telling me he can fix the problem so we can have more kids. Uh, well, Mr. Harmon, if you'd like to come in and to the delivery room and watch the operation, you are welcome to come. I just shook my head and followed him into the operation room. As they are pulling Eric out of there, I'm just looking to see if he's deformed or not. Some nurse is holding him up and another nurse comes over to me and says, Now, would you like to do the honors and cut the umbilical cord? She hands me a pair of scissors. That was just a little too much for me. I handed them back to her and said, No, it's your job. I'm not a nurse. Is he okay? Are there any deformities? Nurse holding him, smiles at me and says, Not that I can see. He looks like he has all his fingers and toes. I let out a sigh of relief and sat down in a chair as the other nurses cut the cord and they handed him to me in a blanket. He was very tiny. He did have to stay in the hospital for two weeks with Jane. It was touch and go because he was so tiny. But he came through and he ended up being a healthy baby. There is nothing like motherly love. Most people realize that. If all men could just be mothers for a few days with a newborn baby, maybe we wouldn't have wars. I got all the instructions for the breast pump, and Jane seemed to be very happy with her newborn son. Then, when he was about three and a half weeks old, she lost it. He woke up as usual in the middle of the night to breastfeed. 
I went to the crib and brought him over to her. She held him for a second, stared at him, then looked at me and then literally threw him at me. Here, he's your blank, blank, blank son. You take care of him, she screamed at me. I knew then and there there was no more breastfeeding for that boy. I had frozen some breast milk and then started the process of fixing his bottles at night. I knew right then, at that moment, I would have to raise him probably mostly on my own. If Jane and I stayed together or not, I would have to raise him, and I knew right at that instant. The thought wasn't scary and not even that overwhelming. It just was reality, and reality actually had a tranquility to it because it was, it was real. I had helped raise Marina and Michelle. Still, the responsibility was a bit overwhelming with a newborn baby. I took on the responsibility pretty well. Later, when I was getting divorced from Jane, my father's secretary, Jeannie, that lived in the same building that we did, said in a statement that Eric was the only child she had ever seen that cried for daddy not mommy. It was true, but I had never thought of that. I just did what I had to do. When Eric was about three months old, James seemed to be getting out of control depressed. Postpartum depression is what I guessed it was. I made the determination that even if she had some issues, that I could make things work out. One day we had a disagreement about something. I don't even remember what it was, and she went crazy, throwing things at me in the apartment. She threw an ashtray and it hit the plastic stereo cover and broke it with a loud pop. Later, the neighbor that called the police told me that he thought it was a gunshot. He said that he knew she was nuts and she always did the majority of the yelling, but when he heard that pop, he got scared. I had a policy of leaving when she got too crazy and going for a long walk or spending the night sleeping in my truck. I had actually started keeping a blanket in my truck for those occasions, actually. I was trying to leave, but she kept blocking the door. She wouldn't let me out the door. I didn't hit her or do anything. I simply put, grabbed her arms, and the next time she tried to strike me instead of blocking it, and then I gently put her down on the floor, still holding on to her the whole time. I let her down easy, and I held her there, then opened the door. I told her, stop screaming, calm down, and I'm going to leave for a while, and I'll come back. I told her I would call her later, and then we could talk. I'm doing that. I'm talking to her calmly. Next thing I know, the police are coming up the stairs. At that point, and there I was, holding her on the floor after the neighbor said he'd heard a shot. Off I went to jail. She may have told them I had tried to kill her. She was so mad. I don't know. But later that night, when Eric cried for his bottle around 2 a.m., she actually brought him down to the police station, holding his bottle, and retold her story. They let me out and did not file any charges. A few days later, she told me that she had saw an Oprah Winfrey show that if you told the police that your husband or boyfriend hit you, they would just take you to jail. And she didn't believe that was true, so she wanted to see if it really worked. Well, it did work, and it still does today, I believe. Now, of course, 
I may not be a saint, but most that know me well t- will tell you that I'm pretty mellow and relaxed kind of person. Tara and I had been together for a long time and rarely had arguments or fights. My first wife, Cynthia, probably had more issues than Jane, but we did not fight or argue much at all either. My present wife, <coughs> my present wife and I had been together now for, well, almost 20 years. We have rarely had any disagreements or arguments. Jane was still depressed, so I went and talked with my mom. She really loved the fact that she had two new grandchildren. I say two because my niece, Chelsea Palmer, was born exactly one month before Eric. My younger sister and her husband, Mark, lived in the same apartment building. Cindy had tried for years, my sister, to have a child, so it only made sense that Chelsea would have colic. I can tell you, even though I lived at the other end of the apartment complex, you could hear Chelsea all over the neighborhood. That wailing went on and on and all kind of random hours. Mark, Cindy's husband, was an attorney, and I would see him leave in the mornings, sometimes for work, with bloodshot, tired eyes. None of us were getting much sleep. I remember sitting down at the kitchen table one morning on a Saturday with my mom. I was just exhausted mentally and emotionally. I told her that Jane was so depressed that I just didn't know what to do. My mother was depressed for other reasons, but I did not know anything about why at that point. I had noticed years before that she would often cover up from having been crying when I showed up to visit unexpectedly. My sisters knew a lot more than I did, but why she was depressed, but they refused to tell me. We sat at the breakfast table, and I told her I was worried and asked her if she would talk to Jane. She agreed, and I brought Jane and Eric over on a Monday morning. My mom went for a walk with Jane and the baby carriage. They went to lunch. My mom, even though at probably one of the darkest times in her life, tried very hard to encourage Jane to perk up and change her attitude. It seemed to work, actually, for, to some degree, and Jane did seem to become happier and more stable for a while. We agreed on not having more children, and we would work very hard to see if we could have her daughter Priscilla come here as soon as possible. I talked with an immigration attorney, and it looked like it might take another six months. There was not much we could do about how the system worked, and we knew we would just have to wait. We had another argument or something a few months later, and this time I thought I would be smart. So I went to the phone booth, and I called the police. I told them I had just had an argument with my wife and that she may call the police to tell them all kinds of stories. So I'm just notifying you ahead of time that she may do that. I was at the phone booth outside a little store about three blocks from my apartment. The person on the phone told me to hold on for a few minutes and I could talk to someone else. Like a fool, I believed them and waited. Not more than a few minutes later, up comes a screeching police car. The officers jump out with their guns pulled, yelling for me to get down on the ground. This time, even though she retracted her statements to them again, they went ahead and pressed charges against me. I spent the night in jail, and it wasn't until the next day I was able to get someone to bail me out. My father was off at some convention with Darrell in Dallas, and my older sister was out of town. I was too embarrassed by the whole thing to call anyone else, so I had one phone call left and started looking through the phone book because they were trying to hurry me up. I knew if I didn't get bailed out, I was off to the county jail the next day. 
I didn't want that to happen. Nobody wants to end up in the L.A. County Jail. It's known for abuse. Prisoners get lost in that system on a regular basis. So I found Don Hamilton in the phone book and recognized that name. I knew him as one of my dad's friends, a bartender. I called him, and he bailed me out. I paid him back the $5,000 the next day, and then I was pretty much near broke. I talked with Jane two days later and told her if things didn't change, I was going to have to file for a divorce. I could not live that kind of life. She apologized, went to the courthouse, and told the prosecutors again that it was all a big mistake and that she wanted them to withdraw the charges. They refused, thinking I had forced her to go say that. There was no evidence, no marks on her, and she did not go to a doctor or a hospital. But this was Santa Monica, the most liberal town in America, so none of that made any difference to the prosecutor. I ended up having to plea bargain. Just like 95% of the people in America, they get arrested for something, a criminal arrest. They get arrested and they have to go in front of the justice system in America and plea bargain. That's how it works nowadays. I don't care how much television you watch or how many people you talk to, the American justice system is a mess. The old saying that you are innocent until proven guilty, that is long ago disappeared. The reality is that you are arrested, thrown in jail, forced to post bail, then forced to hire an attorney or use the public defender. Either way, it doesn't matter if you use if you hire an attorney or get the public defender. So even if you are innocent, most likely you will plea bargain at the advice of your attorney because if you lose, you could do the whole sentence. So they gave me 50 hours of anger management classes, probation, and 60 hours of community service. I did the community service right away to get it out of the way. It was late June and it was hot, but fortunately I had to report at 5 a.m. and was usually clocked out a little afternoon. The first job they made me do was clean out the back of trash cans, I mean trash trucks. It was mostly nasty work, but I did it for a few days. Then I was lucky enough to go work with one of the welders they had there. He wouldn't let me weld anything, but I would drive around with him and fix the broken trash bins. When it wasn't busy, he would drive down to the beach and park in the parking lot and read the newspaper. I finished that up in a week and half, week and a half, and then enrolled in the anger management classes. They were at night. I went twice a week to some house off Venice Boulevard that had been converted to offices. Life seemed to be improving a bit. Jane planned to take some classes and to get a job. I didn't want to have another divorce. I was doing the bottle feeding at night with Eric, but he started to sleep more on a regular schedule, so I didn't, have, I didn't have to wake up at night as often. In the beginning of July, Jane and Eric, they went to Brazil for two weeks. She went to visit her daughters and family and see how the immigration process was going from that end of things. But what else she did, I have no idea, and I really don't care. I have been doing more than my share of the parenting to that point, and it was good to have a little break. Some of my friends and family thought she wouldn't come back, but I told them that, that and they told me I was crazy to let her go. I had bought the ticket, and I knew she had a return ticket. She may have had issues with life, but she knew I was a good father, so I knew she would come back. 
When they did come back, Eric was sunburned, sort of badly. She had taken him to the beach a few days before she came back to the Santa Monica, so I can only imagine the kind of pain he was in for the few days before that. I've never held any grudges against Jane or the justice system. I learned over time that life is not always fair. People all are different and everyone has their own view of reality. I know the past is gone and all I have is my future. I know that every day. None of us are perfect and I know that too and anyone that claims they are is just lying. I admire people with faith, faith in God or faith in any other kind of religion, but I do not admire people with false gods or crappy religions that obviously have abusive or inhumane ideas. I've studied all the major religions and I like the Buddhism that I practice the best. I was a science major at UCLA and I continue to study daily. I keep abreast of contemporary issues. Buddhism is scientific and looks at the universe in a logical way. I feel sorry for people that believe here in America the term freedom of religion means all religions are equal because that is just pure ignorance. Religious beliefs and practices are not equal. At any rate, life was moving on, and so was I. Chapter 10, where's my log cabin? We were planning a little party for Eric's six-month celebration on August 3rd, 1992. Not much of a celebration, but making it through six months after having been born premature was a good thing. He was healthy and a happy baby, and he didn't cry that much. We would, he would twirl his hair when you gave him his bottle, and then he usually fell asleep. So on August 1st, around 6 p.m., both my sisters called me and said that our mother was in the hospital. They told me that I should come over. She was in St. John's Hospital, where I was born, actually. She had been diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat a few years earlier and was on medication. She seemed to be doing fairly well with the medication, and I know she really loved her two grandchildren, Chelsea and Eric. All grandmothers love their babies. I don't think it could be anything major, so I headed over there to the hospital anyway. It was not too far away, so I walked. For months before that, my father kept saying to me that he was worried she was getting Alzheimer's disease. I knew she seemed sad and often would stare off into space, but... She knew who I was. She knew everyone else in her life. Maybe he was saying that to me just to cover for the fact that she appeared more sad than usual. I really had no clue. When I arrived at the hospital, my younger sister, Cindy, and her husband, Mark, my older sister, Janice, and my father were there. It was worse than I assumed. I could see the concern on my sister's faces. The doctor came out to talk to all of us. He said, that she had gone into cardiac arrest and they were working now to revive her. Fifteen minutes later, he came out and pronounced that she was dead. I was in shock. My sisters were weeping and crying. I was distraught and crying also. My father, my father was not crying. But I went to hug him anyway. And then he did start to cry some. It was an odd feeling because my family was not a family that hugged often. I was married to a Brazilian woman, and they are naturally very affectionate to culture. I was getting used to hugging, and I thought I would console my father. 
He wept, but I had no feeling that he was consoling to me. About half an hour later, the doctor came out and said he had to tell us something. He stated that my mother's blood level indicated that she had taken a very high dosage of her heart medication. He said that the normal procedure in these cases was to request an autopsy. That hit my sisters and me as a big shock. Everyone looked at everyone else. I spoke up and I said to the doctor, I said, doctor, I don't think my mother would intentionally take her own life. She may have forgotten that she took a pill and then took another one. I don't know, but she was starting to become forgetful. I was remembering what my father was saying, that she was starting to get Alzheimer's. My mother was, to me, as close to a, quote, saint, unquote, as anyone could be. So there was no one that wanted to harm her, and that was for sure. And she would never harm herself. She was Catholic. My father piped in and said right away, that is right, she was, she was starting to get Alzheimer's. My sisters were very distraught and not able to say too much. They were both in shock and just stood there weeping. The doctor then said that he wouldn't put the cause of death as suicide. But before he did, he looked at each of us directly in our eyes as if he was searching for an answer. I stayed at the hospital and I prayed. I didn't really want to go home. Before I knew it, the time was after midnight. So I left and I started walking back home. The emotions were really pouring out and I was tired. I went to cross the street on 15th and Wilshire and a black Mercedes ran the red light just as I was stepping into the street. The car was speeding and brushed past me just barely nicking my clothing. I turned, yelled at the guy and made a bad gesture. He stopped the car about 40 yards up the street and I walked over to him as he got out of the car. Hey, you can't give me the finger like that. I will kick your ass, he said. I'm an ex-boxer and I would just beat the hell out of you, he yelled at me. I was pretty pissed off. I am not a fighter and had only been in one fight in grade school. I just wanted him to know that he had run the red light. I told him that if I had been an elderly person and not reacted, quickly that uh, he could have killed me or killed someone else. I made the point and I could smell the alcohol in his breath, but he just kept coming closer to me. I could tell he didn't care what I was saying and that he was going to hit me. He was coming directly at me. I put my hands up in the air and said, hey, hey, I don't want to fight. I was starting to back off. I was ready to run, but I guess I had a lot of anger built up over the years and I felt trapped. When the word fight left my lips, my hands went down and I floored him with one blow to his right temple. He stumbled and crumbled and then fell to the ground. I stood there and watched him fall. Then he tried to get up and come back at me, but he couldn't. He was down. Then some lady from a nearby, the nearby restaurant yelled out, I'm a witness. I'm a witness. I saw you hit him. So I ran off. I ran all the way back to my apartment. I stayed up and prayed for my mother, swollen hand and all, until I fell asleep. My mother was born on October 21st, 1919, and died August 2nd, 1992. She was 72 years old. I was 37 years old. We had the funeral, and a lot of her relatives came out from back east and stayed at my father's house. 
I remember the day after the funeral, I showed up at my father's house unexpectedly and my Aunt Frances had a very bad look on her face because she had been in a heated discussion with my father. In early December, Jane and I had another argument. I went out to my truck that was parked in the front and was waiting until she calmed down. I learned from the anger management classes, which were nearly completed, that the best thing to do was to call a, quote, timeout, unquote, when a dispute occurred. So that is what I'd been doing whenever we had a disagreement. I was starting to doze off in my truck when I heard something in the back of the truck. I thought maybe a cat had jumped in there. Just as I was turning to look, the back window splattered all over me. There stood Jane with a crowbar ready to take another swing at me. I jumped out of the car and ran off. The back of my neck was bloody from the glass cutting me, but it wasn't too bad. I came back about half an hour later, got in my truck, and started to head for the police station to make a report. But when I got to the police station, I decided against it to be continued.